0: All right, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. I'm in chapter 2 already. Uh, before you turn on the tape there, um, I just want to let you know that let turn to Mark chapter 2, and we're looking at the, the first section of this narrative here in Mark chapter 2. And before I look at that, let's have a, a bow and a word of prayer. Father, as I come before you this morning in the great and precious name of Jesus Christ. And we come before your word, Lord, that has been superintended by your Holy Spirit. So the accuracy of your word is true, and it is God's word that we proclaim. We don't have to think or wonder if it is. It is. And it's been proven and tested throughout the ages, and we know, Lord, in the imminent. Original manuscripts—they are inerrant in all ways, and the one—the Word of God—we have in our hand now is uh, a reliable translation that gives us the true and honest Word of God. So, Lord, this morning, as we look at this passage, and as we again uh, are challenged by the Word of God to learn more of who You are, I pray that's what we would get today. We would see who Jesus Christ really is and how He revealed himself and I pray Lord that we would be in the group of people that believes and not the group of people that are skeptics and scoffers I pray Lord Jesus that we know that you who you are we know that you are God and we know that you present yourself that way in scripture help us to see that today and I pray it would change us the way we think the way we live um, both privately and publicly and I pray that you would receive the glory and honor. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 2. Verse number 1. It says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Of course, that's speaking about Jesus. Now, before I go any further with that, remember, I want to remind you that Mark portrays Jesus principally as the servant king in whom we should follow. And so far, we have seen Jesus in this gospel as one who displays his authority in his teaching, his authority over demons. Last time we entered into the narrative to experience Jesus as a perfect servant who cares about the physical and spiritual needs of his people without being sidetracked. uh, from his main mission, which is to preach the gospel of the kingdom to all peoples. And then, of course, last week we saw Jesus demonstrate his power of compassion over uncleanness as represented in leprosy. And today we're going to look at, and if we could try to wrap our minds around um, the right the way I'm putting it, and the might of Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, so the background of this text, Jesus is now back in his home in Capernaum. And the word got out that he was back into, in the area. And, of course, it says there in verse number 1, it says, after several days... Now, the question would be, where was Jesus for several days? Well, if you remember, Jesus had withdrawn himself into the wilderness to pray and to hold communion with the Father. And Jesus would pray to the Father for whatever important things are going on in the ministry. And so Jesus prayed, remember, as a man. And he prayed with the sense that he could not stop having fellowship with the Father. So his prayers were about the work the Father would give him to do while here on this earth. And he prayed because he was dependent on the Father for all things, just as we are dependent on God for all things in our life. So according to Luke uh, chapter 5, We see that as Jesus came out of that prayer time, Luke records in verse 17, and the Lord was present with the ability to perform miracles, or he was present to perform miracles. So Jesus came forth having power to heal. Now we saw Jesus heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law. We saw last time Jesus dealing with the leper and healing him, and all that went on in that narrative. And if there's an observation here to remember, it is the power of God will only rest on us only in proportion to our drawing near to God. We have no power in and of ourselves. We have power as we meet with the Lord. we're We're given the Spirit of God. We're given the Word of God. But remember, it is our time to draw near to God privately and gain strength and wisdom and power to do our ministries, to live our lives in a way that honors God. One old divine once wrote, neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. So we can glean from that that Jesus broke away to pray And we ought to also pray. And that was a challenge a few messages ago. Of course, Jesus' popularity had grown immensely. And as soon as word got out that he was in the area, people began to flock to his home. And if you notice, in verse number 1 again, and... When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, verse number 2, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Um, Now, Jesus wasn't preaching to them here. Actually, he doesn't use the regular word, the two regular words for proclamation or preaching. He uses the word... That means to just make sounds. In other words, Jesus was just dialoguing or speaking to them, just sitting down across the table type of thing and talking with them. And of course, the way he speaks and what he speaks about and the authority he speaks with with captivates the people and he keeps their attention. So the crowd that was assembled there that day, uh, and there were many in that crowd who came to hear Jesus teach, was a mixed group. Uh, There was a group of sharp critics. The Pharisees, it's listed here as the scribes, the scribes and the doctors of the law were there. In fact, those doctors of the law came up from all the regions to listen to Jesus speak on that particular day. So these groups are often... Uh, groups that are assembled whenever the word of God is spoken and the Lord is present. But some, of course, of those groups were searching for faults. But there was another portion of the group of devout seekers and devout believers that were there listening to Jesus. So this portion of Scripture tells us of a man that was sick with palsy or a paralytic, Uh, Palsy is a a debilitating disease which gradually kills the body. Uh, It affects the power of motion, leaving the mind unaffected, but often very weakened. Some say that one side of the man's body had been rendered useless, and hence he could no longer walk and use any arm. Uh, his arms and and then probably had great difficulty even talking so according to in fact Matthew chapter 9 Jesus, Jesus also noticed that the man was sunken in his spirit uh and in his mind uh and so in and, and in his bodily frame so he was burdened in in some way uh and what that way is Uh, we don't know. Actually, we do know, but right now you don't know. We're getting there. Jesus, of course, immediately offers in Matthew, uh, not recorded here in uh, Mark, uh, encouragement. He said actually to the paralytic, take courage, my son. So he he wanted to give a word of encouragement uh, to this young man who was a paralytic. And so let's look into the narrative now and to what's recorded for us because we want to see at least uh, several things. We want to see faith and Jesus' response to the paralytic. We also want to see those who hinder faith and Jesus' response to the critics. And then we want to see the might and right of the Son of Man and how the crowd responds to Him. And that becomes how it's set up uh, this morning. So let us look first at faith and Jesus' response to the paralytic and those who are with him. Now notice in verse number 3, immediately we see that he was carried by four friends. It says, and and in verse 3, it says, And they came bringing him a paralytic, carried by four men being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now that's how it's recorded here in Scripture. And now if you remember, last time when the leper came to Jesus, he was alone. He had no one to help him come. But he came to Jesus, the right person. Now, He came in his own uh, way and and with his own uh, hindrances. However, there are people who will need the aid of a small group of compassionate workers before they're fully saved, before they come to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Now, just think for a moment. Just think about your own life. Some owe their conversion today, to the regular teaching and preaching of the Word of God in the church. You owe your conversion to that. It was because of the Word of God that you came to Christ. Some owe it to the private communication of truth by someone else. A parent, a friend, a co-worker. And they spoke to you and spoke to you until you came to Christ. God used that. Some By a track, or some literature that they read, and they were challenged in their belief and came to Christ. But in some cases, God will use three or four who band themselves together for the purpose of bringing someone to Jesus. Right? Now, any one of us can be those people. We ought to be those people. See, we, and the reason why is because we know people that are paralyzed by alcohol, drugs of all kinds, legal and illegal, some paralyzed by their love of money and pleasure, some paralyzed by false teaching and works-based religious systems, some paralyzed by their own sin and by the sin of others that was committed against them. But there's spiritual paralysis all over the place out there. Everywhere you go, people are paralyzed. The problem is they don't really know it. They know something's wrong, but they don't know they're paralyzed. And the reason why is because they need someone to come and speak with them and talk with them and bring them to others. So, see, these people may need extra help by the band of faithful workers. So, brethren, don't ever, ever underestimate the efforts that you make to bring people to Jesus. None are a waste. So don't let the enemy convince you that you don't know what you're talking about if you've been a believer. If you've been under the word of God, you have something to say to people. Because, I tell you this, that Jesus will help us, the Spirit will help us to witness and believe me, sometimes when you're falling all over yourself, thinking no one understood a thing I said, those people come to Christ. When you think you're the clearest preaching the gospel, it seems like nobody's even listening to you. So it's God, it's God who does it. But be faithful. Be faithful to go to people and help them and sometimes bring them to the Lord. And it may be you that bring them, brings them to the Lord. So see, your efforts are seen by the Lord Jesus Christ. All right now look at verse number 5 in our verse verse number 5 and Jesus notice seeing their faith. So see Jesus sees their faith and responds to that faith because he said something to the paralytic. So the the faith of others can have an indirect influence in promoting the eternal salvation of the souls of other people. So Jesus saw their faith, although it does not tell us how he saw their faith. In fact, this is, I believe, this is the only place in scripture where it uses that uh, a, a word that means um, perceiving faith. Uh, and so it's used here. Now, How do you see faith? Mark and Luke tells us what Jesus saw. There were four who agreed that they must bring him to Jesus. But there would be obstacles. It would be impossible to bring him to Jesus by ordinary means. He was disabled, and the crowd was too thick. So the four bearers were prepared to accomplish their purpose at, against all risk. And remember, faith always has an element of risk, risk to it. Where it says in Scripture, what did Jesus say in Mark? If you notice in verse 4, and being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. So you see, there's faith that has action connected to it. In matter of fact, faith always has action connected to it. And what they did is that, okay, we can't get them in the front door. We can't get them to the crowd. So remember, in the Middle East, the houses were usually built one level, sometimes two, and on top was usually opened, and there was a stairway on the side that you can get up to the top roof. And because of the weather is so nice in the Middle East, and so beautiful most of the time, uh, that they would go up there to pray. They would go up there for a, time of, uh, a quiet time. They would go up there just to relax or to look at the stars. They would go up there to the roof. Now, the roof sometimes was just layers of grass that was on top of the roof, and so they were to dig down through that grass and uh, or whatever was on there, some kind of dirt, and some beams that were put together, and they would then make a hole and lower this man in front of Jesus. That's how they would get him there. And, of course, all that is motivated by faith already in who Jesus is. So, see, the fruit of their faith appeared, and they're not being wearied out. And they're not being discouraged by obstacles. See, they found the entrance closed on all sides, so they made an entrance. So people who act in this manner are really those who already have faith in the power of God. Their faith drives them to do something. Digging through the roof conveys the idea of considerable labor to remove them the material and open the roof so taking a soul to Christ may be laborious work it may take some doing uh, to get someone there so we must never give up we we must never stop at difficulties it should always be more difficult for us to let a soul perish than to stop laboring for its deliverance These men could not preach. But they could be burdened for souls and hold the rope. They could open a hole to the roof and let the man down before Jesus. So faith in action is creative. It is active. And it does not stop at obstacles whatsoever. So let's pray that a holy ingenuity would be excited in us. The church, God's people, and that we would never, we would always have in our mind an understanding that people are perishing and slipping off into a lost eternity without Christ. That we would be the ones who would make the effort because we know who Jesus uh, is and we know that it's only him that could save them. And we would make every effort possible to get that person to the word of God, to the preaching, to the message, Whatever means it takes. So see, Jesus saw their faith, and their faith was active. You saw it because they did something. Now look in our text in Matthew chapter two, in verse number five again. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now wait a minute. This did this man come to Jesus? with the burden of the sense of sin? You, would not, you and I would not have perceived that from the paralytic or even from his friends. However, Jesus sees all that is involved in the sufferer's case. And all that is not only involved in the case of the particular paralytic, but those who are standing around and then also for all future time. So look how Jesus tenderly and gently addresses the paralytic. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this term for son is actually the word that means my child. So this is a a term of endearment. It is a term in which Jesus is using to uh, show compassion and to show that he sees his deep need He sees his issue, but if you notice, he did not say anything yet about the man's condition physically. You think that way, he would say automatically something, but no, this man is in dire need at once is that is is really set at ease by Jesus and Jesus expresses this deepest of human compassion by calling him my child. Now, did the paralytic feel he suffered from a greater ailment than paralysis and came to Jesus with the burden of his sin also? I would say yes, he did. And Jesus saw that. It was not just his physical condition. Jesus saw more than that. Jesus could not have said to him sweeter words than, son, your sins are forgiven. So instant dismissal of sins is taking place here the man the men only saw the bodily affliction Jesus saw the guilt of sin and the desire toward being released from the burden of that sin now we don't know if the man was paralyzed because of his sin that's not always the case we know that in other places in Scripture so practically Jesus says to him your sins at this moment are dismissed. That's what it means. They're ceased, they cease to be. And he was justified at that moment in the sight of God. Jesus forgave the man and all his departures from the way of righteousness in a moment. So sins sent away from the sinner so completely never to be found again. As it says in, of course, in other passages like in Psalm 103 as far as the east is from the West, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then also sins that are blotted out so as to be removed from our record completely. As it says in Isaiah, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will will not remember your sins. So there's a way in which the Lord forgives to the point where he doesn't even remember your sins. Of course, he doesn't never bring them up against you again. So only God, only God is able to send our sins away in this manner. No one else could do that. So see, that's the situation so far. Now, in the midst of that, there are those who are sitting in the crowd who are taking this all in. And so this is the next thing that we look at. If you notice in verse 6 through 9, the hindering faith and Jesus' response to the critics. We see here in verse number 5 of chapter, excuse me, in Luke chapter 5, you don't need to turn there. It tells us there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The the word got out of what Jesus was doing, and they all came out to find out, but they came out for the wrong reasons. They came out because they were already his enemies. A man claiming to do these great things. Only God can do these things. That's how they viewed it, and their remarks were quite uh, curse and derogatory. And so they began to... Ask derogatory questions, but they didn't ask questions outwardly, publicly. They were asking questions in their heart. They were asking questions in their mind. Now, notice what it says in verse 6. It says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So, see, these men are silent, yet reasoned in their hearts with their own perverted thoughts about what had just taken place, and who Jesus was. See the questions in their heart had hostile intent to it. Now we know that in the scriptures, the the Greek uh, says why. It says there, why does this man speak this way? This that's a derogatory way to say it. Matter of fact, it could be translated, why does this fellow speak this way? It's a, it's a downer kind of way of saying something about a person. So their reasoning brought them to the wrong conclusion. And what was the conclusion? It says in our text, it says that he was, in verse number 7, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this is what they're thinking in their heart they concluded that he was blaspheming. And, of course, blasphemy consists in the assumption of the divine prerogative. The statement of the scribes is undeniable. Only God can forgive sin. That's undeniable in Scripture. Only God can forgive sin. Yes, for a mere man to pretend to forgive sin would be blasphemy however the problem is the critics ignored the possibility of a man's speaking for god and the fact that they had been had before them one whom already gave evidence of authority over sickness and disease and over demons and now authority over the spiritual the ability to forgive sins and in a moment we're going to see a no, again authority over physical paralysis they should have at least considered that he could be the Messiah but no they concluded in their mind that he was a blasphemer so Jesus confronts them in verse number 8 It says, immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? See, Jesus confronts them with their own vicious thoughts, which they concluded wrongly about the plan of God and about the person of Jesus. It says here that Jesus, aware in his spirit, that Jesus in a single moment reads their hearts. Jesus knew what went on in the, the secret recesses of their mind. He saw their thoughts. And so we know that those thoughts were evil, not from necessarily from Mark, but from Matthew, where it says, and Jesus knowing their thoughts, why are you thinking evil in your heart? So Matthew brings out the evil aspects of what they're thinking. Of course, concluding that Jesus is a blasphemer, of course, is evil. So Jesus, again, expressing the the divine prerogatives. And only God can read motives and scruples. Right? See, the Lord knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows your thoughts when you think them. There's nothing we can hide from God. All right, so in this sense, Jesus is actually displaying before them that only God can read motives. Do you remember from the Gospel of John, where in, right in the beginning of the jo- Gospel of John, it says Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And then again, he says in the Gospel of John, And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, he knew everything that could possibly be known. He does not usually display, display his divine prerogatives as a man. But here he does. And it comes out because he reads their wicked reasoning in their heart. So Jesus asks a question. And he asked that question because his authority that he claimed from heaven was at stake. All right, his authority meant his right to forgive sins on earth. And so what does he say in verse number 9? Here's the question. It says in verse 9, your sins, excuse me, it says which is easier to say to the paralytic? He's saying to the scribes, your sins are forgiven or to say get up, Pick up your pallet and walk. What's what's easier? Which of the two statements is easier to affirm? See, Jesus leaves it right there. He doesn't really ask for their response. He will demonstrate in 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 a few minutes that he can do both. See, it must be an important issue for people to be given the right answer to the question concerning the true nature and the real nature of Jesus Christ. Two statements come up. In verse number 9, it says, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Taken together, they give the right thoughts about God. Both these things, require the identical power of God. Only by the power of God can sins be forgiven, and only by the power of God can a paralytic instantly be restored. So see, the question is the power of God. The power of God that is now contained within a man named Jesus Christ. That is a real issue and a real dilemma for the skeptics. Now, how will the skeptics ever know sins are forgiven? Well, Jesus tells us how the common crowd, along with the skeptics, will actually know that. If you look at verse number 10, we see that we come to... The right and the might of the Son of God and the crowd's response in verse number 10. Jesus issues three simple direct commands. Now, before I look at those commands, I want you to notice in verse number 10 something. It says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... So that that term, the Son of Man, becomes a very important term. In fact, this title, Son of Man, comes at a very, very strategic place in the narrative. This title, first, remember, lists Jesus out from among all men as being one who bears the human nature like no other man bears it true man but more than man God secondly it connects Jesus to humanity as a suffering servant in his mission in his first coming like I I said in the beginning one of the key verses of the gospel of Mark for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many see it is the Son of Man who came to serve. And then, of course, thirdly, it tells this, this title tells us that it is a messianic title. The phrase Son of Man is used eschatologically or for end-time things that will happen in connection with the consummation of all things at the end. I already said that Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, sees a vision. And in his vision, there is a fifth ruling empire the fourth great world power and the only difference is the vision had the one like the son of man in it this power is said to be the kingdom of the saints of the most high that smashes all other kingdoms of the world and takes over at the last as the last kingdom as the last world ruling kingdom ruled by of course Jesus the messiah and so we, we have this in Daniel where Daniel records, I kept looking in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven as one like the Son of Man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom and all the peoples, nations in every man and every, of every language might serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So in that, we see that this term Son of Man is used for his first coming, and it is also used in connection with his second coming. So this really brings together all the plan of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So this must have been driving these scribes and religious teachers wild. Jesus, the Son of Man, is ultimately the judge of humankind. If you look and take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it brings up that term again, and it says there in verse number 38 of Mark 8, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then again, in Mark chapter eight—excuse uh, me, chapter thirteen—in uh, verse twenty-six and twenty-seven, again the term "Son of Man" comes up, and it says in verse twenty-six. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So the Son of Man, in connection to Jesus Christ, is is one who is claiming to be God without saying it directly. He's connected by these titles used in other parts of the Word of God. He's connected by reading their minds. He's connected by saying to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, with no explanation at all. He's saying all that. So yes, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what it says in our text in verse number 10. And he said to the paralytic, now, the phrase on the earth is stressed, it stresses the fact that he can forgive sins here on earth. In other words, So the people will know that forgiveness is no longer something far away, but something that can be accepted here on earth and is brought near to them in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, God has come to earth. So the syntax breaks abruptly at this point, and one imagines Jesus speaking to the scribes, And then turning abruptly in mid-sentence and then speaking to the paralyzed man. And he says to them, I will do X so that you may know. Jesus does not finish his previous sentence with words. He finishes it with action. Again, the the connection between those things, the, the action of the Lord. So we come back And we see in verse number 10 that the Lord, again, he gives three simple and direct commands to the paralytic. And notice what it says in verse number 10. He said to the paralytic in verse number 11, I say to you, here are the three commands. In verse 11, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. That's the commands. And the Lord gives Those commands. But I say this that one act verifies another act. In other words, what he just said to the paralytic verifies what he said to him just before that. Your sins are forgiven. See, the forgiving of sins is invisible. No one saw the sins piled up on the man's soul. No one saw the mass of sins vanished after Jesus says your sins are dismissed. No one saw that. So what does Jesus say? So you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This is what he says. Rise, pick up your pallet, And walk away and go home. See, one act verifies another. In other words, the healing of the paralytic is instantly visible. It's instant visible to all that are there. They see the man rise. They see the man pick up his pallet. They see the man walk away and go home. They see that. And that is the very thing that substantiates that both needed the power of God in order for it to be accomplished. One was invisible that cannot be seen. One is quite visible and quite powerful and they can be seen. And it's showing again that Jesus Christ in his calmness and is not even pro making great proclamation here as with loud and Uh, tones or loud voice but speaking quite calmly says to this man your sins are forgiven listen rise pick up your pallet go home that's impossible but it's not impossible with the son of God because the son of God is God who can forgive sin who can have authority over a paralytic, and make him completely well, where he has no rehabilitation at all to go to, not not that day or any day. And then he reads the thoughts of his critics, and all through the passage of Scripture, it's just screaming to us that Jesus Christ is God. You cannot get away from it in this, this passage of Scripture. You're there. You feel it. You sense it. And that's exactly what's supposed to happen. Because the word of God as it goes out and the presentation of Jesus Christ as given as it's supposed to be given is always dividing the people. It's pushing the critics to one side and it's pushing the believers to another side. But it's not pushing them into the crowd because the crowd could be anybody. And, and you notice that Mark is going to use the crowd, the crowd, the crowd. The crowd gathered at the door. The crowd listen, were, were, were listening. The crowd was there. But the crowd don't mean you actually believe in Jesus. And the crowd doesn't necessarily mean that you're a critic. But the crowd does mean something. It means that you may not be in the kingdom of God. Whether a critic or not. Because It's unbelief that keeps one from the kingdom of God. It's not being born again that keeps one from the kingdom of God. So see, Jesus responds to his critics. He responds to the paralytic. And now the crowd responds to what happened. And notice what it says in verse number 12. It says, and he got up. And immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. That's incredible. I'm there. We're there this morning. We see him walking away. We see him walking away. In fact, the Greek means continuous. He didn't come back. He kept going home. He kept going home, and they all are looking at him, walking, walking this guy was paralyzed. Now his sins are forgiven. He doesn't have that burden anymore. And his physical health is restored by the Lord. And they're just going wild. And so there immediately he gets up. And then notice what it says. God gets all the credit from the crowd. It says in verse 12, so that they all were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like You know what, when you read the Word of God, when you're studying the Word of God, oftentimes you'll walk away from it with those thoughts. I've never, I've never heard or seen anything like this. This must be the mind of God. This cannot be the mind of a frail, feeble, fragile human being. This is the mind of God. And you walk away amazed. You walk away giving glory to God where the glory ought to go. And saying, when you say something like, we've never seen anything like this, you know what you're saying also? I want more of this. I want more of this. So see, the common people were amazed and glorified God. But the religious leaders were blind. They acted as spies in order to find out a charge against him. Instead of praise, it was hatred. People saw the power that raised this man was not human. They saw this power was divine. They realized God had given authority and power to a man. Now this does not mean that anyone could have this authority, but that God has been pleased not to keep this power in heaven, but to give it the people on earth in and through Jesus Christ Jesus is the one who has this power so see so what so what I'm saying so what for this reason you can't you cannot leave this narrative without your view of Jesus being altered You cannot leave this section of Scripture without without having the right view of Jesus, or you misread the whole thing. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Son of Man is the Messiah. Either you believe it or you reject it. If you calmly walk away with no effect, you have rejected it. If you outright scoff against it and say, this is all a bunch of baloney, I don't believe it, then you rejected it. Whatever way you look at it, there must be belief or there must be rejection. However that rejection looks. But I tell you what, when you read this and you see this is from the mind of God, then your view of Jesus becomes altered. And it becomes corrected. He's just not a carpenter. He's just not a great teacher. He's just not a great example to follow. He is God. And he is God who has authority to forgive your sins and cancel them forever. And he has authority to raise your body from the dead when that day comes. And he has authority to judge all human beings of all time. He has authority. See, do you believe this? Do you believe who Jesus is? And if you do that, are you willing to be that faithful band of compassionate workers? If you believe it so much, are you willing to faithfully and cre- creatively labor to bring souls to this person who has authority to forgive their sins and make them right with God and re- release them from the burden of sin and? And give them eternal life. Are, are you willing to do that? See, belief in Jesus must have action to it. You just can't say, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. See, because belief is going to say this. If you believe, if you have faith, show me. Show me your faith. So those are the two things. Those are the two things. That to have a faith to bring others to this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, no matter what obstacles are there to bring them, because you know what? Jesus is the only hope for anybody, no matter who they are. He's the only hope. We have no other hope. But he can do everything that no one else could do because he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and God gets all the credit for all that will happen. So he's calling us to both things, belief and faith faithful action to bring the gospel to the lost i pray that you will desire to do that i pray that you're doing that now i pray that you have in your mind someone right now that you're thinking about talking about the gospel with and that you're praying for that person bringing them to come you know, I just wanted to say one thing about that is that, you know, sometimes uh, when we witness the family, family is sometimes the hardest group of people to witness to. Would you not agree? And and me being a pastor, of course, growing up growing up in my family, uh, from time to time, of course, we have holidays and we go over people's houses. And, of course, I always pray that the Lord bring me an opportunity to talk about something spiritual, the gospel. And so I talk about it and, you know, this one particular nephew I had would be pretty much a scoffer. And he would get up and leave and try to get everybody else to leave. And sometimes that's exactly what happened. Matter of fact, last time I was witnessing somebody, the whole kitchen was filled with people. I started talking about the gospel and all of a sudden, it was empty. Well, this past year, he came to know the Lord. That's over 30 years. And this past week, he drove to California to go to Bible college. See, would I believe that? At times? No. But see, there's nothing impossible with the Lord. There's, nothing, there's no one impossible for salvation. But what was it? It was the faithful witness of the Word of God. When you didn't think it was doing anything, when you thought no one was listening... When you thought it's better to knock your head against that wall than actually continue to speak. Don't think like that. That's the lie of the enemy. God doesn't waste anything. And he doesn't waste the witness of his kids. Never. Never does that. So we know who Jesus is. We know the message. Now let's go tell people. And trust the Lord for the results. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness and the faithfulness that you had towards us who sit here today. Lord, we would never have been here if it wasn't for the gospel coming to us, however it came to us. We would never be here. We would be somewhere we were, where we wanted to be in the flesh, some desire we were pursuing, maybe just to sit back and relax. And just let life go by. But Lord, you saw fit to bring the gospel to us. You saw fit to raise up people to speak to us about it. You saw fit to raise up the church and bring gather people together. You saw fit to accomplish your mission and the preaching of the gospel. Even this day, you are still doing it, Lord. And we thank you that in the word of God, you show yourself us for who you really are you are the god man you are you have come the first time as a servant you are coming the next time as the judge and a ruling king and so lord between now and then let us be faithful witnesses and every time we get a chance to speak lord use us open our mouths take away the shyness take away the apprehension and, Lord, allow us to just share with those who are around us what God's done in our own life. And I pray, Lord, those faithful witnesses and those words would be used by the Spirit of God to bring someone under the conviction of sin where the only place they, would see they could run is Jesus Christ and then they would meet Jesus and find out Jesus can forgive their sins forever and he can make them someone they never thought they could be and give them eternal life. Oh, I pray, Lord, for us as a church. I pray for the families of the people who are represented here. I pray that you would make us faithful witnesses, not only to live for you, but to speak for you. And I thank you, Lord, for what you'll do, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this morning we do have the Lord's